Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, a show that's by sports PTs and for sports PT professionals. We're here to accelerate growth in your sports PT career while giving you the tools to provide your athletes with game-changing results. Here's your host, sports physical therapist and practice owner, Dr. Yoni Rosenblatt. Welcome to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. Super excited to have Zachary Kogan on. Zachary is currently the head and director of rehabilitation at DC United. Generous with his time here to, to share a little bit about what got him to where he is and then also to dive in a little bit clinically. So, Zachary, tell us your professional history. Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, excited to, to get to speak to you and your audience today. I started out, went to PT school in New York, uh, New York Institute of Technology, graduated in 2017, and went directly into a sports residency program out in Los Angeles at Adventist Health Glendale. Uh, shout out to that facility. It was an outstanding experience. Uh, great mentors, great colleagues, learned, learned a ton, and directly catapulted into uh, Division One Sports PT Fellowship with USC, which the program was designed to have the clinical experience happen at UCLA Athletics. Um, so I worked as a physical therapist there, uh, worked with outstanding athletic trainers. Uh, my mentor, who is the director of rehab, is a PTAT, uh, had a great experience over there, really uh, getting to work with the elite athlete, getting used to that population. Uh, whereas in my residency, it was more becoming a generalist in the sports PT world. And moved on from there to work with Exos, uh, where I spent a few years. I, I worked as the physical therapist for the Los Angeles facility, where uh, the Galaxy played. So they shared a facility at Dignity Health Sports Park. And when COVID hit, unfortunately, um, things didn't work out and the facility actually closed and um, ended up getting relocated down to the San Diego facility in Carlsbad, so North County, San Diego, where I continued my role as a PT for Exos and worked with them for uh, another year, year and a half. And then I got offered this gig to fly back out to the East Coast, where I'm originally from in New York. And uh, it was nice to for the opportunity to... Uh, step forward into the pro sports world and also to be close to home family friends and uh, it just kind of everything kind of melded together and uh, pieces fit nicely love it yeah welcome back to the best coast um, a couple things that uh, you a lot of people say best coast west coast i know i know they do <laughs> um, okay so a couple things that you conveniently glossed over number one where are you from in new york i'm from long island where are you from, from in long, long island, island? So I grew up in a town called Belmore, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I lived there my entire life until I jumped over to LA. So it was definitely a uh, a culture shock and a big move for me. But you know that move uh, was so huge for me, not only in my career but just per personally and personal growth. Uh, the amount that I grew as a human being was just exponential. Uh, so. Uh, I, I owe a lot to you know where I am today with the experiences of just being a human and, and living away from home and, and just you know needing to figure things out. Um, okay, awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Even more poignantly, before you get accepted into graduate school, how long does that take? 
Great question. Because uh, that's I'm just asking. Word. I ask everyone this. No, it's it's <laughs> even more significant in my story. Um, you know, graduating undergrad, uh, I was unable to get into PT school for three years. I took the GRE five times. Uh, my GPA. So I wrestled in college, and uh, I admittingly, my GPA was not great in undergrad, and I had. Uh, difficult time taking tests. Standardized tests were just not my thing. And I had several schools tell me that I wouldn't be able to handle the workload, that I wouldn't be able to pass the tests, I wouldn't be able to uh, handle the amount on my plate based on what my scores were, uh, what they saw my grades were. Um, even though I tried to show some sort of progression, and in my junior year in undergrad, I really started to pick it up a lot. And I showed that I was able to get better grades. Uh, there just wasn't the consistency that most of them needed to see. Uh, so after all of that, uh, a school, uh, New York Institute of Technology, took a chance on me, and it was, uh, you know, didn't look back since then. I love that, and it, it's, I think, one of the reasons so many listeners said, you got to get Zachary on, because he's got a great story, and he, he's doing something really cool. It also resonates with me. I'm not also the be- I am also not the best student, and I feel like bef- between you and I, we've helped a few people, right? And so... It seems like they're just testing for the wrong things in terms of what denotes in a successful PT. What do yeah, you think? Yeah, and it's 100%. And I think that a lot of it has to do with there's more to P- being a PT than studying what's in a book and learning information and getting a score on a test. You know, there, there's a certain level of emotional intelligence that goes into to being a professional in this in this world and being able to connect with the person in front of you, being able to communicate and listen to the person in front of you. And I think that those skill sets can be more powerful than understanding uh, information, which obviously holds its own weight and merit. And I think that's extremely important for what we do. But you know, if you're able to connect with somebody, that is that I believe is one of the more powerful tools that we can harness as a clinician. I totally agree with that. Now, in your role, um, I assume you're you're doing some hiring um, and you've done some supervision and some management. So, how can someone who maybe doesn't have the most outstanding GPA, how do they get across to you that they have what it takes? It's a great question. And I think it's a it's more about the experiences that they've had. You know, what type of person are you outside of the classroom? If if the classroom isn't your thing and it's just it's a challenging thing for you, are you making the effort in other ways? Are you doing volunteer opportunities? Are you shadowing people? Are you um, attending lectures and are you attending courses and are you are you educating yourself in other ways that maybe someone else next to you isn't? Uh, so what, what exactly are you doing that's a little different um, that could help you stand out next to somebody who maybe has better grades but isn't doing the types of things that you are doing from a volunteer standpoint, networking standpoint, so on and so forth? What did you do? What were some of your experiences that set you apart? Well... Outside of the sports world, I worked as an aide for a long time, and that was my first introduction. I, mean, I, I went to physical therapy as a, 
as a high school athlete, as a collegiate athlete, and I think most of us who are in the sports PT world did at some point, and mm-hmm. I think that's what eventually the the, the gateway into there. Mm-hmm. And being an aide, obviously, oh, it, it exposed me to learning how a clinic works, learning what the day-to-day really is, learning basic corrective exercises and programming and things like that. So I think that was my first uh, exposure and experience into that world. And working there for three years, uh, I definitely learned a lot along the way for sure. And outside of that, I had one special experience to me that I really kind of just, I put my head down and tried to grind and find myself in a situation where I would be able to volunteer somewhere that was a, that would help me stand out. And one of those places was the United States Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. Uh, As a wrestler growing up, I wrestled in high school and college. The highest you really can get in wrestling in that circuit is Olympic wrestling and Olympic level. And that was that was my dream uh, when I was before I was even PT school was to be a physical therapist for Team USA wrestling. Mm -hmm. So as a student, I thought, wow, that would be amazing be able to do that type of thing and um, I was lucky enough to you know send some emails to the right people uh, send send a well-written email to the right people and, and come across the right person's desk to read it and really say hey you know this this guy took this time to write this great email well-worded you could definitely tell that I spent a long time on it because I definitely <laughs> self-checked that thing at least 10 times uh, I do remember that and uh, you know, eventually got a hit back. And I love that. Uh, Zach, don't yeah. every, everyone volunteers at a PT place, right? Everyone's been a tech that is probably listening to this pod. Don't make me drag that story out at you. Like <laughs> that, that, dude, that's clearly what did it. But, but uh, even more so, what the hell was in that email? And I guess what I'm better asking is, how do I get a guy like Zach Kogan to respond to an email if I'm a student saying, I'm dying to work in professional soccer. I grew up uh, and was were exposed to things that taught me about drive, motivation, passion, character. And those were the types of things that I got across in that, in that correspondence and that, that piece of email and specifically passion. And I believe that passion will help drive a lot of the things for an individual to be successful as a professional because it helps you to listen better, it helps you to communicate better, it helps you to want to learn more and learn from the others around you. Uh, It it really, um, that kind of thing really kind of sets sets you up to be able to jump off the page, uh, for lack of a better word. And I think that was what I was trying to at least instill. So for somebody sending an email to somebody else, trying to have that type of opportunity, really paint a picture for who you are because that person doesn't know what you look like. They don't know the tone of your voice, but really try to get across some sort of emotional component to hopefully light a switch up in their head to be like, hey, catch something to catch their eye. Yeah, say, that, hey, this is a little different than what I typically see. That's great advice. Uh, some of my best hires at True Sports have been not based on resume. It's, I, I still ask for cover letters because of that. I, exactly yeah. because of that. I want to hear passion. 
everyone everyone's been volunteering at a PT clinic, right? Everyone's tried to vary that experience of volunteering. I think that you hit a nail on the head. I think it's about that passion. By the way, I, I think that's what leads to success in a session. If you can show that athlete that you really give a damn, that the number one thing to you, the therapist, is that they reach their goals, they're just going to freaking love you and most likely do better in terms of trying to attain their goals. So uh, thanks for bringing that to light. Tell me about the interview process otherwise at DC as you as you got that job there. Yeah, so I inquired, I sent an application out and um, heard back a few weeks later and got a call from the director of performance at the time who was also an Exos, um, a former Exos employee, and uh, recognized uh, the place where I worked and were interested in somebody with a background from the Exos world, uh, specifically due to the education that's given based on movement interventions and on-field types of progressions and things like that, bridging a gap between um, the rehab world and performance world and the experiences that the clinicians get who work in the performance centers being able to um, relate to working with other interdisciplinary professionals such as a strength coach, a dietitian, those types of things. So um, he found value in that and he reached out to me and to gauge my interest and see you know, why I sent an application out, why DC United, um, why soccer, why professional sports and really just learn about me. Um, and then from then on, it, it kind of just snowballed into, you know, an interview, another formal interview with uh, him, the director of performance and the head athletic trainer at the time. What what, then, what they ask you? And, and by yeah. the way, you you show up. Is this you go from California to D.C. for this? Yeah. So this was in the, the weird gray area of covid times. Mm -hmm. I feel like in a non-COVID world, I probably would have been there in person, but mm -hmm. we did have uh, a Zoom virtual type of interview. Uh, first one was the phone call with him, and then we did have a, a Zoom, and then uh, another subsequent Zoom with the general manager after that. Um, did, you wear a so, did you wear a tie? I did. Okay. I you did. I did. Um, and uh, and what they, they ask you? That is always my go-to for any <laughs> interview, no matter where it is or Jacket? who it's with. Uh, I just went with it, so yeah, I just went with a tie. And just a, a tie. A button -up shirt. That's I all, did. I know. That's how I know you're a physical therapist. <laughs> just a tie. We don't know how to dress. We're terrible dressers. <laughs> yeah, I just didn't suit up for that one. Um, okay, so um, what would they ask you? To start off with, you you expect the the typical answers that they said. If you know, the typical questions they say at first, you know, tell us about yourself, uh, who you are, where you're from, uh, what you do. Um, and then it moved into what are your experiences working with athletes? What are your experiences working with professional athletes? What are your experiences working with soccer professional athletes and soccer elite athletes? Uh, tell us about a time when you, know, you had to work with a soccer athlete who had said soft tissue injury. And then I went down a clinical road of talking about how I would manage a grade one or a grade two hamstring strain, grade two adductor. Uh, they went through uh, asking about my experience working with other professionals, working with a head coach, and my experiences of communicating with a head coach about return to play, about uh, availability status, things of that nature. 
Dude, these are easy questions. So if they ask that to um, anyone who comes out of Exos, anyone who comes out of um, any type of residency, they're going to give, I assume they're given the same answers. I would hope. Somewhat similar. What did you say in the interview that they're like, Jesus, we got to get Zach? And if they're in the building, just bring them onto camera, and I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it's it's off season right now. So actually, I'm the only person here today. Thanks for coming um, in. So I, I got I got no one else to drag in here, unfortunately. Um, yeah, you know, that's a tough one because it's quite possible that people gave the same exact answers as me, and I, there's no way for me to know that. Uh, but I, you know, I really just went through my answers and I typically approach those trying to show how objective I am during those types of processes, uh, whether it's communicating with somebody who's not in our discipline, maybe somebody who doesn't necessarily understand our language and being objective with those types of conversations, um, being objective with other professionals, maybe a performance coach or a strength coach, or being objective while I'm speaking to an athletic trainer. And you know, those types of um, conversations are obviously different with different people, and trying to get that across that you know you're able to tailor uh, your expectations and your uh, communication and outcomes in different language. Yeah, I, well, that's awesome, and that was probably not spoken about by everyone. So I bet you that you know that jumped out at them. If I had to guess, um, what did they shock you with anything? Any crazy question? They try to trip you up. Uh, and no, to be completely there. honest, all transparency, I don't really remember if I was tripped up on much. Um, Which is why you got the. Job. You know, I pro I probably was. You know, I feel like every every interview that I, I've had because I've I've certainly had interviews for pro sports teams that I haven't gotten or been offered that position, and. I can confidently say that in every interview I've been surprised or, um, you know, just a little had to think a little harder for certain answers for sure. Uh, so I can almost guarantee that I was given one, but I just can't recall off the top of my head right now. Yeah, No, that's all right. And then in any other interviews, just for the sake of people listening, saying, hey, I want to work in pro sports. Is there any curveball that does jump out at you that you're like, you know what, if they hit me with that again, I would have handled it differently or... Uh, anything like that would have prepared differently for, for the various pro sports interviews? Yeah. So I remember a question in an interview that I had, and I believe that once you're in the pro sports world and you, you've been in the day-to-day -day and you understand how the week rolls around, you understand how the season schedule rolls around and what each day entails, what in the soccer world, we call it match day minus three, match day minus two, match day minus one, and that type of language, what actually takes place on those days, uh, what you do the day before a game, two days before a game, three days before a game, um, at least in this role, is pretty standard. And being able to communicate in the language uh, of a day-to-day -day and a weekly schedule for an athlete rehabbing, trying to put it in a language that's more so... Um, in the pro sports world rather than the outpatient orthopedic world, if that makes sense. And I think that was the number one thing that, and there's no way for me to really understand that unless I was in 
the pro sports world already. And I think that's one of the reasons, I believe that's one of the reasons why a lot of the opportunities in the pro sports world, they're looking for people with experience in professional sports so they understand how that type of thing works and the dynamic works uh, within the league and within each team. Yeah, so. I, I think that's a great point. I think it's, um, it's unbelievable to me, like as I work with pro athletes and, and work with from an outside, from, a, from a, the private sector, just how different that language is. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the different goals and, and the different, it's almost it, baseball, we call it feel, where it's, hey, like you just don't say certain things or you do say certain things. And just understanding that rhythm, I think, does go a long way. Um, if I'm not coming from a pro experience, how do I gain that? How do I gain that? <laughs> Great question, and the best way to gain that is to network and talk. Yeah, talk to people. It. If there's anything I've learned from being a PT and a young PT, I'm not saying for the majority, for the, I'm not saying everybody is like this, but I'm lucky enough to that the people that I've reached out to, even candidly, have been friendly enough and kind enough to want to communicate openly with me and answer questions that I may have. You know, them being a professional in the, in the sports world for 10 plus years, they recognize that I'm somebody trying to get my foot in the door and I just want to learn from them. And whether that's at conferences like CSM, whether that's connecting through social media, LinkedIn, networking from that type of outlet or that platform, that holds value. And those conversations are powerful. And you, you never know what you'll learn from those types of experiences. So I think that um, that something like that has definitely helped me I as well because that. that's certainly something that I did quite frequently and still do. And, and you, you brought that up a few times during this conversation. Like you getting into that Olympic uh, wrestling situation was by virtue of the fact that you sent the email. The school did not set that up for you. You made that connection, right? And then you begin networking through Exos. And, and you take it upon yourself to get into the USC world. Um, and I think that sometimes gets lost. No one's going to do it for you. Um, I also really appreciate your school, your graduate school, letting you do that. One of, one of my struggles was I was dying to be in sports and I, I went to my graduate school and they're like, okay, here's the list of affiliations. And I'm like, none of this, I don't want to do any of this crap. Like mm-hmm. I want to work with freaking athletes. They're like, well, okay. Well, but, and I wasn't allowed to reach out. Um, and I love that your institution did allow it. So kudos to you. Yeah. It was, uh, I was definitely lucky enough. And I was also, uh, which I kind of breezed over, but in my residency, the pr- one of the reasons why I was drawn towards my program that I completed was there was something called resident-directed learning. Um, and essentially what that was is you got to kind of figure out how you wanted to check off the box of X amount of hours in that bucket. And... I coordinated again with the training center. I, I reached out to uh, colleagues and, and the, the professionals I met over there, and I went over there for, for another month when I was in my residency as well, So and really and helped out with um, some data science and analytics stuff uh, within the sports, med, uh, the sports med roof. So it was, again, what I did in, in school really helped set the stage for some other opportunities in the future too. And, and you're clearly so self-motivated. I mean, GREs five times, setting up all this stuff, that's really awesome. That's the secret to how, how you got where you are, I think. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. 
I can't tell you how many times I've been, I was asked when I'm like, what my plan B is and you know, when I was going to give up, like when I was going to stop, what else I had in mind. Cause you know, after the, after the second time I didn't get into school, it was, uh, you know, people were starting to be like, Hey, what's the, what's the deal here? Yeah. So it's amazing kind of where, where you've gotten. So now that once you get the DC role, you walk in, um, what else is a piece of this role? How would you list out your responsibilities? Yeah, so I'm director of rehab here and and physical therapist for the first team. And so essentially my responsibilities and roles, uh, I work alongside three other athletic trainers, uh, one head athletic trainer and two assistants um, who are outstanding professionals, all three of which have extensive experience in soccer, uh, in Division One soccer, in professional soccer, and really understand uh, the ins and outs of the sport to a T, especially from a medical standpoint. Uh, so lots of pearls to be learned and still learning from them. Uh, and so working alongside them, I work alongside a director of performance and an assistant performance coach as well. And we, we make up the high performance in sports medicine division or department within our organization. And myself in general, specifically working with the athletes who are rehabbing, um, long-term rehab specifically will be under my care and my watch uh, throughout the entire process, mainly our post-ops or anything typically longer than a week and a half to two weeks uh, will we'll be on my table and be working within my plan of care as I will create. And outside of that, being able to collect data and baseline testing for from movement screens to uh, any anthropometric or strength power metrics that we want to collect. So we have those baselines if need be, if they need to go through a rehab uh, type of continuum. Or as we, in the preseason, as we create uh, their injury risk reduction programs, notice how I said risk reduction programs, oh, I not prevention programs, yes. uh, you know, utilizing things that maybe jump off the sheet to us and being able to uh, create risk reduction programs for our athletes so they don't end up on the table or needing an extensive course of rehab. Yeah. Um, yeah, so those are the two main roles and responsibilities that that I encompass outside of, you know, I will be performing pre and post practice manual interventions, uh, going through, you know, like I said, the, the risk reduction programs, going through their corrective exercises that are prescribed by me uh, before and after practice uh, for individuals based on, you know, whatever their needs may be. And um, yeah, so that that's, that's essentially in a nutshell. And... And what, what has been the biggest um, struggle? What's been the biggest challenge coming in in the last year? Well, first and foremost is just the overall idea of being in pro sports. It's just a different world than it is in orthopedic outpatient. Tell me and, how. You know, Tell me how. Treating, listen, treating an athlete is treating an athlete, mm -hmm. right? So you're, you're being objective, you're, you're going through your progressions gradually, uh, but you have a lot of other variables at play. Uh, there are a lot of other pieces to the pie and a lot of other hands on deck in this setting, right? So you have your athletic trainers, you have your performance coaches, you have your front office, you have your general managers, your head coach, your assistant coaches. Right, you have the athlete who's getting paid X amount of money and is X priority to this team, 
Uh, so you have all of these other variables that weigh into the decisions you make, the conversations you have, the progressions that you make, and the regressions you make, and things like that. So it's just a different um, context. The contextual environment is just completely different than somebody paying to come see you versus you know this athlete is being paid by the club to see you. So, so it's just, it's a different dynamic. There's so much psychology there. Um, that, that, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's really interesting. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Um, how, how do you reconcile that, right? So you have um, number one player on the roster. You have the guy last on the roster. They both tear their ACL. Listen, I know as well as you do that you're dying to help both of them. Like you said, one of them comes first. How do you, how do you uh, reconcile that? Well... I wouldn't say that one of them comes first. I knew you would correct that. Yeah. (laughs) Good correction. I hear what you're saying, but I wouldn't say that one of them comes first because, listen, and I I say this all the time to people, human beings first, athletes second. To me, it's a human being in front of me, not an athlete, not somebody making a paycheck of X amount of dollars. What I see first and foremost is this is an individual who needs my help. Mm -hmm. And it's my job to get them back onto the field safely in a progressive manner and making sure that I'm communicating their progress along the way. And approaching that, I feel, helps me to give the best quality of care because once you start to prioritize certain people over others and you give them more of your time, then you know you start to maybe rub people the wrong way and you lose respect of individuals and things like that. Um, so... It's more so about the when you have an athlete who is more of a priority to a man, upper management, the management may want different things at different times, ask you more questions about an individual. Uh, they may be more, not breathing down your neck, but being more persistent. And that kind of thing, just it, it changes the, just the overall temperature. Uh, and the, you know, the the overall outlook of how much people may press. Sure. If yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I could totally see that. And then, ha- what happens, uh, or what's your best advice? I, I would say, um, you're dealing with an athlete, and I deal this with this all the time, even in the private sector, where you're dealing with an athlete. They're about ready to return to sport, but maybe not all the way there. Coach comes and says, "Hey, need him tonight." Mm-hmm. How do you handle that? Yeah. And that is where the difference between the the priority athlete versus maybe the not-so-priority athlete really jumps into play is when you're in a situation where a member of the coaching staff, the head coach, whoever it is, general manager, comes to you and says, hey, we need this person. You say, hey, yeah. And I'm just going to go a little side note here. I like to think of myself, and we joke, and the athletic trainer also, the athletic trainers also say this. You know, we feel like we're we're injury risk advisors. You know, we're we're advising on our um, best advice as to what is the risk of this athlete being successful. Are they like physiologically? Are they safe and ready and strong enough to handle the capacities required of them? So being able to communicate those types of things to the coach, saying, "Hey, 
athlete A looks great. They're, they passed all their tests. They've been in practice at full, unrestricted, full contact, no issues, haven't complained of anything for a good enough amount of time that we feel comfortable that, hey, they're good to go. Or, you know, this person is still working. Like, they're still progressing through their things. They have a couple of boxes still left to check off. You know, they need, still need a little more time for their tissues to adapt. You know, they've only had X amount of practices under their belt that were full, unrestricted, non-contact, or full contact. You know, could they potentially get through a game? Yes. Are they a risk? Yes. So you're giving them an idea of what the risk is in that scenario because ultimately it's not my decision to say, hey, like you are playing or you aren't playing. I'm trying to help guide this process to get that athlete on the field, whether it's the coach's decision right away to do it or the athlete saying, no, I want to play. As long as that those individuals understand the risks that are in front of them, that's how you kind of proceed through through that. And this goes back to a just a general idea of thinking about the return to play decisions. And you asked before, I mentioned the pro sports environment, all the different people at play. Think of like a Venn diagram and there's a uh, the BGSM consensus statement for return to play from from um, uh, 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 jogging my memory right now, uh, Berlin, and uh, there's a Venn diagram in that in that paper that always stood out to me, and it's it's essentially has athlete in the middle, and it has like a bunch of different professionals that point off of that athlete. And the athlete's in the middle, but you have the head coach, you have the sports scientist, you have the nutritionist or dietitian, you have the physical therapist, you have the athletic trainers, you have all of these people, front office coach, and all of these pe- people are weighing in the decision. And you're just a one piece and one small part of that. And understanding your role in that is very important when it comes to that. So sorry, oh, a little sidebar right. on no, that. That, that was great. Really know your role. Um, you need to put chief risk advisor on your business card because that's an awesome <laughs> That's an awesome title. And by the way, I feel like it'll come with a raise if you're a chief risk advisor. But um, that's a great way to look at it. It also speaks to our need as a profession to be objective, to get objective data. Hey, here's the QI. Here's their dorsa V. Here's their force plate analysis. Here's uh, all of those things. They paint a beautiful picture, which it kills me when a doctor says, hey, you're nine months out, so back to the pitch right like it, it there's so much more than that yeah uh, and it's it goes back to the first thing one of the first things i mentioned was you know being objective and numbers are pretty universal language they don't you really if you put feelings. it in if you put it in a language that that the head coach can understand and a dietitian can understand you know you're you're kind of setting yourself up for success cuz you just want to you have to you know provide them with something tangible instead of just saying it out loud show them yeah yeah in in whatever way you want to that that's really powerful and i think there's so many uh nuances and specifics that come out of that conversation that can be totally worthwhile to both a new grad as well as a vet pt and i think really getting that great objective data in a sporting environment is what makes a great sports pt and, and takes you you know uh just in a different world than your gen pop um so that makes a lot of sense let's get a little bit more clinical um i would love to hear what it looks like um say your star athlete pulls a hammy comes off the pitch you see them the next day 
a Zach Kogan evaluation looks like what? <laughs> so typically next day, maybe two days after, depending on you know what actually occurred, the severity of this. You know, there are some diagnostics that that typically are done, uh, whether it's imaging, musculoskeletal ultrasound, really understanding the severity of the tissue uh, that is involved. Um, you know, whether it's grade one, two, three, obviously you're going to manage those a little differently. And uh, understanding that some of the interventions, maybe for your grade twos and grade threes, we may be moving forward with a PRP injection, those type of things, to hopefully accelerate the process, allow for some better healing pop- potential and properties. Um, so it really depends whether it's day one, two, or three. Uh, but eventually coming across the table and being able to connect with that athlete, really just understanding where they're at at that point in time. You know, before you even see the athlete, you kind of have an idea, okay, is this, are they a repeat offender? They have a history of hamstring injuries. And obviously we know as clinicians that uh, you're more at risk for a soft tissue injury, a hamstring injury, if you've had one in the past. So the subsequent injuries are more common to happen. Um, And, you know, you have an idea of what they've been dealing with. You know, is this their 10th? Is this their second? Is this their first? So obviously your communication with that athlete is going to be a little different for your first timers or even for your 10th. So, you know, understanding that and really going to understand, hone in on your subjective and your communication to them and what the process is going to look like, uh, how the progression is really going to look. Uh, these athletes, this is their job, this is their occupation, and they're, they're very driven individuals, most of them. So giving them a clear picture of what the road looks like ahead is very important to them, or I believe is very important to them. Uh, and so that's that's the first thing I like to do is really get them to understand what the process is going to look like, especially if they haven't worked with me before. Um, okay, love that. So you mentioned grade two or three, uh, and we're talking hamstring here. Potentially you're going to uh, PRP injection. Um, how quickly do you do that? So usually the athletes within uh, – would receive, if they're deemed appropriate to, to be receiving a PRP injection, uh, usually within, I'd probably say the day after they get an MRI or two days after they get an MRI. So it's usually as soon as possible. Um, yeah. Okay. And then how long do you shut them down for? If, if that's a piece. I don't mean to assume. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So after the PRP injection, we're able to work on a f- other things globally. You know, understanding their deficits and impairments, whether it's mobility, control, strength, other things in their chain that we're able to intervene on, we're obviously working on, but locally at the site of the injection, we're typically shutting down 48 to 72 hours. Let that um, intervention, let the PRP soak into the tissue like a sponge, let it kind of do its thing, and then really take your time with reloading that tissue and 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 progressing them from there and understanding that that PRP is still kind of sitting there a little bit. So you want to make sure it's doing its thing and not prescribing anything even after those that 72-hour mark-ish that we're, we're still diligent about avoiding things that may flush that extremity excessively, any contrast types of things, co- intermittent compression modalities, any um, ischemic preconditioning, BFR, even starting regular BFR, knowing the vasodilation that happens afterwards globally, you may be you know opening up those vessels and really just flushing out what you really, the medication, quote unquote, that you put in there. Um, how, long, so, how long do you wait for that? So 
That one, I believe, also it could depend uh, based on you know the the size uh, and the amount that was used. But usually, we've seen around seven to ten days um, before any of those types of things to pump out. Okay, now a little bit nitty gritty. Let's say this is a hamstring. Let's say it's a grade two. Let's say they had PRP. Uh, you're going to give them 48 to 72 hours before you start getting into the direct site of the tissue um, that was that was damaged. Um, are you doing glute stuff? Like, does that preclude you from doing glute stuff? Does that preclude you from doing prone hip extension? Like, how far away do you need to be? Are they in a brace? Are they on crutches? Give me a great picture of what they actually look like. It's amazing how much gray is yeah. there is, right? So many different variables and so many so many different variations, and I'm sure the clinician standing next to me would probably say something a little different. Um, I would say exactly what you're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, from a loading perspective, let's say 72 hours has gone by, usually starting at the site of the tissue, whether it's glute, whether it's hamstring, whether it's quad, I'm looking to protect that area for a solid chunk of time. So thinking about our tissue healing phases, I'm not looking to load that hamstring tissue until at least day 10. Day 10, okay. At least day 10 before significantly loading with any external load. So you're good with body weight. So I am good with body weight very, very light isometrics, almost like getting the light switches to turn on again. Stim? I, ne- I don't necessarily utilize stim. I'm sure someone can, uh, but I don't utilize that modality um, for that particular scenario. Uh, but, you know, getting them to feel that tissue turn on uh, or feel some sort of fatigue or activation in that area without symptoms. So we're looking to avoid symptoms. And that's, I think, is the most important thing is um, being able to load it without setting off a nociceptive response and creating an environment where the athlete, you know, obviously every athlete's different, but you, know, you could almost turn that athlete off and make them a little more fearful to move forward through said intervention for sure okay so that gets you through through day 10 then then what like give me your principle as to how this person gets back on the field sure progressive and gradual overload of the tissues understanding the tension that's in the tissue how much force with tension is being put through that tissue with the intervention that you give them you know, understanding that an eccentric type of contraction, there is more of a demand on that musculature versus a isometric or a concentric. So understanding when you're starting to implement those things, when you're able to get them into a, um, a position that requires the tissue to be a little more on length versus in more of a shortened position, right? And this obviously you know, tapers to which hamstring muscle is the injured tissue, right? So is it more proximal? Is it more distal? 
you know, what was the mechanism. So you have to understand those principles too and how to reload those things that were the cause of the issue to begin with. Was this a follow through of a kick? Was this a linear, you know, uh, top end speed type of thing as they were at max acceleration uh, and just maintaining their speed? Did they feel it on their stride leg, uh, on their front side mechanics? So it really just depends on that and understanding that that is something that we want to get back to and how you're going to move forward towards there. So starting with our isometrics, then getting into our slow concentrics, adding some weight with those slow concentrics and maybe having pauses of isometrics within those slow concentrics. Then starting our gentle, slow eccentrics and then progressively adding more resistance to those types of things, more velocity to those types of things, and thinking about your force velocity curve. Obviously, we want faster speeds at the end, slower speeds at the beginning. Um, and that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell, uh, without going through like, specific interventions uh, to kind of get down to the nitty gritty of it. No, but I think that gives you an awesome um, uh, you know, rubric to work through. And I think those are awesome principles to highlight and it's important to note that you're really starting to talk like a great strength coach. And that's where so much of this rehab is going, right? Like being able to understand what happens in a weight room, when to load, how to load, eccentric, concentric, isometric, et cetera. Yeah, and that's that's what I find is probably, I mean, in those, in those phases after day 10, when you're starting to able to progressively load this tissue, I think that's the most important thing on how to get the athlete in a more robust state uh, than hopefully they were in before they stepped on the pitch the day they got hurt. Because that's always the goal and that's usually my communication to the athletes. Like, hey, listen, our goal is going to be not to get you back where you were, but better than where you were when you, the day you got hurt, the moment that you got hurt. And we want to get you into a better spot than that. And um, so, yeah, so thinking about that and Everybody may do it differently, but there is a point in time in their rehab when their rehab program turns into more of a strength block type of thing. You know, block A, block B, block C with foundational lifts and accessory lifts in there as well with some sort of ESD or energy system development component added in there as to what their tissue can handle at that point in time. You know, day um, three through 10 doesn't mean you can't do any sort of aerobic component. You still have upper extremity modalities at your advantage. You have a row, you have other different things that you can give the athlete, med ball splams, whatever you feel is appropriate to load that tissue. And it's not loading it too much where you can hurt it even more and making sure it's protected. So avoiding the site when you need to, Target the site when you need to in a um, in a progressive way. Yeah, um, love that. So they move all the way through that. They're doing really good, really well. When do you introduce plyometric activity? When do you introduce a box jump? I want. Well, we have to think about what are the what are the requirements for a plyometric, yeah. and what type of plyometric are we talking about? Because plyometric we can define in so many different ways, right? We can define a plyometric as just you know a drop to base. Like, are you just absorbing? Or are you just jumping up What comes and then first? stepping down? What do you do first? This is your world. You're in charge. This, yeah. So in the continuum that I mentioned prior as the thinking about force velocity, different types of tissue lengths, things of that nature, con what I'm usually targeting is isometric, concentric, then eccentric, and those in that 
order, thinking about our landing component as more an absorption type of practice versus a concentric movement up onto a box as more of you know a force production type of principle. So potentially starting with an up before a down is usually where I may start. Um, but it also depends. You know, is this a uh, a lower grade one where they were pretty asymptomatic the entire time and can they tolerate you know something a little quicker and everybody responds and heals differently and it's um, you know matching symptoms up to also clinical exam we're lucky enough to have a doctor's clinic weekly uh, bi-weekly where a doctor will bring in an MSK ultrasound so we can actually see what the tissue looks like we can see um, the scarring that's happening. We can see the actual defects filling in in real time. So it's kind of nice to see and match their clinical presentation and their irritability uh, based on what we see uh, on a scan. So, you know, obviously not using one or the other, but meshing both together is what I feel is a, a more objective approach. Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's a great way to look at it. I think you have this ladder of progression and scaling, and you just kind of see what that athlete can handle and be comfortable kind of progressing them accordingly. I think one of the bigger mistakes that I see with um, inexperienced or newer clinicians is running comes way, like they need to prove that they can go up to a box, down from a box, over a hurdle repetitively how many how many ground contacts are we looking at before we go back to run do you agree with that sure i mean running is a series of hops from leg to leg so you know you have to be able to believe that an athlete can withstand the physical capacities of running or the broken down to actually run um so then you're you're really thinking about some of the other objective ways we can measure muscle performance uh, because our soft tissue injury, we're, we're most concerned about hamstring performance and the adjacent segments and the whole chain as a whole. So we have other tools at our disposal to be able to measure those types of um, capacities, whether it's isometric strength, whether it's concentric or eccentric strength, um, and being able to look at what their force output would be in newtons compared to the other side. Is it symptomatic? Is it not symptomatic? Are they going 70%, 80%? Are they able to do 100% max effort isometric with no pain at 30 degrees, 60 degrees, 90 degrees, zero degrees, 15 degrees? So you're having these testing parameters almost daily, maybe every other day in a certain way, maybe not one muscle group every single day, but you're looking at what they're coming in like so you have a really good idea at how their body's responding uh, to each session that you're having and really basing your decisions on what you want to do on that day based on how they're presenting. What they look like. Yeah, you got to see what that athlete looks like on your table. I just had uh, um, an NFL player come in with a grade three biceps femoris tear. Mm -hmm. I, I got the MRI before I saw the guy. He walks into the clinic. I thought he was going to be a mess. He's weak as hell in knee flexion, in prone knee flexion specifically. Sure. Asymptomatic. I'm like, how? I was just shocked by that. And it just goes to show you, you cannot treat that MRI. Now, we got to load him up because he's asymptomatic and he's really weak. Um, and he's able to get through all of these progressions without pain. Um, but I thought I'd be spending time like working on soft tissue stuff. But the guy was like basically fine. So you just never know what you're going to see, I guess is my point. Absolutely. Everybody's different. Everybody's different. Everybody responds differently. But, you know, I also do have conversations with athletes quite often um, about 
just because you are asymptomatic doesn't mean that your tissue is done healing. And, you know, we still do have to protect it to some degree. So we have to be controlled in how we do this type of thing. And, you know, that's, that's sometimes hard for the athlete to understand because if they don't feel pain, they feel like they're fine. Yeah. And, and you know, that, so, I think that's why you see the hamstring go over and over and over because I think that pain goes away long before we have motor control, let alone um, just the robustness of the tissue to withstand the forces that go through it. So I think, absolutely. I think you have to understand that progression and, and move them through it accordingly. Now people are going to move through at different uh, speeds. So uh, just to keep in mind, it's, it's really cool to talk through and think about. Now, um, okay, so that's, like an, that's an isolated tissue injury. When that person comes in to see you, um, how much are you looking at those adjacent segments? Like how much are you looking holistically? <laughs> looking everywhere. Okay. Looking everywhere. And that's, that is one of the most important parts of, I believe, a, a, a soft tissue injury like a hamstring strain. Um, globally, what is going on in their system and how their body is communicating and synchronizing together to achieve movements on the field, whether it's kicking, sprinting, decelerating, change direction, so on and so forth. And what are the requirements for that to allow the hamstring to function optimally and safely? And using that acute stage where maybe we're a little limited in the interventions that we can do and the time we do spend on the hamstring tissue, addressing those other areas that are important. So, for instance, what is our hip mobility looking like? What is our hip flexion and internal rotation looking like? What is our dorsiflexion looking like? And thinking about that triple flexion pattern and, you know, on our, our front side mechanic. Um, what does our thorax look like? How is our thoracic rotation? Can we feed into that side? Can we feet away from that side can we explode out of that side and rotate opposite so now, what does our upper extremity look like how quickly what is our scapula threat jesus how quickly do you <laughs> how quickly do you get up to that right because they come you're focused on the hamstring how quickly do you jump to thorax versus looking at adjacent segments i believe that everything lives together and we're jumping pretty quickly up to it and i think that's one of the one of the reasons why um, I guess it goes so quickly there is because and everybody obviously changes throughout the course of the season, uh, but there are baseline evaluations done that I do in the beginning of the season, so I have an idea of how each athlete works um, and how their body moves, and being able to almost profile them as to what their potential deficits look like. Right, so do they have a directionality deficit of not being able to rotate towards their right or their left or vice versa? And so having an idea of what this athlete looks like before them coming onto the table, I think is an advantage to me because it helps me to just be able to program and um, you know hit the ground running with them. And you know also understanding that they have a whole corrective program that they're already doing. Uh, so it's um, it's almost a, a continuation of that type of thing. Just being able to work with me a little more independently, just being able to look a little more under the microscope to hopefully pick up some things that maybe I didn't pick up initially, or you know give them some cues to help them do it a little more effectively. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. What is that preseason screen like? How do you get that movement pattern or that movement identity? So we're looking at movement. We're looking at a movement screen. So it's a lot of it. They function in closed chain. 
and these athletes move in closed chain through space. So we're doing a movement assessment in closed chain. How do you, how do you measure looking, it? What do you, what do you do? Yeah. So we're, we're looking, we're doing a gait analysis. Uh, we're doing, um, and it's, it's not different for each athlete, but it, and it's not a specific like school of thought or, Hey, we're doing just the top tier SFMA or we're doing just 3d maps or we're doing just this and just that. It's almost a concoction that I feel, um, are important requirements for each athlete to have who is a soccer player and taking a little bit and piece of, of different movements, whether it's uh, uh, a lunge from the 3D maps or, you know, a multi-segmental rotation or multi-segmental flexion, a pistol squat. We're looking at different lunge patterns. Um, like I said, gait analysis, running analysis, kicking analysis, leg swing mechanics. Um, and we're getting this on film and we're able to revisit it when we need to. Yeah. And we are re-doing these movement assessments throughout the course of the season as well. And, and you're extrapolating um, hard movement patterns. What's the objective data that's coming out of your 3D maps? So object, So these are. this is more of a qualitative assessment. This is more of a qualitative assessment. We do have a more of a kind of like a fine tooth comb i'll take range of motion measurements with an actual goni love that before like on the table like a very old school uh and each athlete has a what we'll call i, I call it an objective data sheet it's titled as and for whatever athlete's name and it's in his own file and you know that's also used if somebody needs to go in for surgery we have their baseline range of motion measurements maybe it's not exactly where they were at that point in the season when they got hurt but it's a rough estimate baseline of what they were at a different point in time. Have you thought so, about using uh, um, Physimax or, or one of the uh, motion capture analysis tools, uh, a Dari screen, things where you can quickly put them in a place, have them rotate, and you get an objective measurement? I know you have, Zach. What are you using? Tell us. <laughs> we have uh, thought about using those types of things. Um, we, you know, obviously we have a budget and we utilize. You're right. in the pros. There's no budget. Yeah. A we budget. all have budgets. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we only have so many. We do have, we have, when you talk about resources, I definitely have more resources here than I've ever had in my career. Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. A lot more. And a lot more ways to be objective about what we're doing. And when it comes to the different types of tech that we do use, we felt that um, some of those systems we liked one of the systems that we're using a little more than the others for the actual, the potential capabilities that we can gain from it. Um, so we use uh, something called iMeasureU. And iMeasureU is a, they're a wearable sensor. It's basically, it's like a little rectangle, like that's all, that small. And they go on uh, inside a little strap and it can go around your ankle. And um, essentially it's, uh, um, it has an accelerometer, magnetometer, and a gyroscope, and it will collect data for you in real time. And we believe that we would like to collect data and be objective about soccer-specific movement on the field mm -hmm. and understand what is happening during an in-step pass, what is happening during a shot, what is happening when they're changing direction or running, approaching, approaching a dead ball or approaching a moving ball and striking the ball. Right. So we want to know what their body's doing through space, how fast it's doing it through space, and what are those impact loads with the ground and 
the interface with the ball in space. So, you know, we're, we pick like, you know, Dari is great. I've used it before. I've seen it been used before. I've seen motion capture with Noraxon. You know, I've worked with those types of things before. And I've always felt that qualitative, if, you know, being able to look at it and then match it up on the table, you can kind of get a general idea of it. And we wanted to be able to utilize that kind of bucket in a different way, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, a budget bucket is what you're talking about, and and that does correct. That, yeah, yeah, that makes. And sense. that weighs into you know, in this world, you gotta you gotta pick your battles. You can't always have every. I mean, in other markets, in the NBA and the NFL, you definitely have a lot more budget at your disposal to spend as as you wish. Um, but you know, every market comes with a different op- different obstacles, and you know we we try to maximize our budget in the way that we feel is most appropriate. What's up, guys? It's Yoni from True Sports Physical Therapy. We are always looking for awesome sports PTs. Our practice is super unique. We are in network with insurance, but we spend one-on-one time for 45 minutes every single session with our athletes. We are housed in state-of-the-art facilities. High ceilings, big open turf spaces, racks, barbells, weights. It is a performance facility with the world's best sports physical therapist housed within them. And we want to add to our team and grow our team of awesome sports physical therapists. We offer awesome salaries, great benefits, more importantly, the ideal setup to provide the highest levels of care to the highest levels of athletes. We have awesome continuing education benefits. We have career ladders. We designed this practice to suit both the patient and the athletic patient, as well as the sports PT. So if you're interested in joining an awesome growing company, reach out. You can send us an email at pod at truesportspt.com. You can find us on all social outlets at truesportspt. We would love to hear from you. We want to hear how we can make your career even better. Obviously, that's smart. I, I have seen, in response to like the NFL comment, I've seen NFL facilities totally decked out, L- like with everything that you and I just mentioned in the last 60 seconds, every sure. tool, and I have seen it collecting dust in the corner and not being utilized, and yeah. the athlete having no idea about you. So it's about the way you use it, and it seems like you're pretty yeah. economical about that. Sure. And I mean, that's, you know, that's just one tool in our toolbox and you know, we do have several things that we use from a return to play standpoint from a uh, baseline obtaining standpoint so we use catapult gps to collect external load metrics as well which our baselines are usually collected based on their match efforts and their match distances and and what they do as a collective uh, or as an individual in each match and knowing what their metrics they need to be at to be in game form, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, using heart rate monitors to know what their max heart rate is during a match and how long they maintain that max heart rate, so so on and so forth. Um, you know, we have multiple Vald suite devices. So we have our Force Decks, our Force Frame. We have the Nord Board. We have a Dynamo. So different things that we can measure muscle performance with, and different performance power outputs, things like that, and physical properties to get a pretty comprehensive idea of how this athlete moves and performs. But when you're measuring 
thoracic rotation, you're standing above them using a goni and watching them rotate. Correct. I love it. It's a good thing you went to graduate school. Watching them rotate. And then, you know, what did you say? It's a good thing you went to graduate school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, and from a reproducibility standpoint, I'm the person who I know that I'm the raider or I'm the tester that's going to be testing these every single time. So regardless, if I use a goni or I don't use a goni, I know where they're standing. There's a specific X on the floor with your feet in the same exact spot, in the same exact spot on the table. I felt it before. You know, you're, I'm moving you through. If you think about the SFMA, like you're in a almost kind of a modified child's pose position. You're looking at thoracic extension rotation with the arm behind their back. Like we're looking in, at thoracic rotation in multiple different ways, and you know with a goni or without a goni, it's both qualitative and quantitative. So um, quantitative, how, although quantitative is good, I think qualitative is just as important as well. Because yeah. I think we, as physical therapists and movement professionals, we see movement in a different way. And I think it's important to use our eyes um, as one of the tools in our toolbox. Somewhere Gray Cook is smiling. That is for sure. I love it. <laughs> um, okay. So... I've heard you talk in the past about um, a communication and a non-communication of adjacent segments and how well they're talking to one another. Tell me how you test that and what those words mean to you. First, we're, like, we start with breaking it down in their component parts. And we're understanding what are the foundational principles to absorbing force and producing force. And that's kind of how I see it in us as human beings. We move through gra- like through space with gravity acting upon us. And we are asking our bodies to absorb ground reaction force and thus produce force to move whatever direction we want at a certain speed and velocity. Zach, and- I wish that there was a test that could tell us how good we are as practitioners at doing exactly what you just said, because that's the entrance exam to physical therapy, not the GREs. It's that no. test. The GRE. I want to be. I want to be politically correct on on here. Not on the true sports podcast. You don't need to be. Politically that exam. Correct. Let me tell you, man. That exam had not even like point zero one percent to exactly. do with what. I did in PT school. I think that was the biggest waste of time and money. Um, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> that's I, just I, I love that. Bar. And that's the last time I'll bring up GRE during this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Gets me heated. Yeah, I see it. But, okay, so let me get you back. So breaking it down, breaking down those movements, understanding how to produce force, uh, receive force, and then talk to me more about that communication or yeah. lack thereof. Yeah. Uh, so those principles, absorption, force production, and what is happening in the body when we're doing that? What's happening in closed chain? What's happening in open chain? Which direction are we rotating towards or away from? What is happening in the foot at a very micro scale? Because there are a lot of different parts of the foot. It's not just a pronatory, supinatory joint. It, there's, there are different dissociated properties to it. Um, you know, are we dorsiflexing, plantar flexing? What's happening at the foot when we're plantar flexing and dorsiflexing? And then what's happening, what should be happening subsequently up the chain at the knee, the hip, the pelvis, lumbar spine, thorax, 
they kind of live together a little bit. And then up the chain, what's happening at the arms, contralateral arm actions, opposites, things of that nature. And when you understand what those shapes look like, movement begins to make a little more sense. And um, it's just the more I started to watch how people move, the more I understood how the, bo- the human body moved. And that, that was kind of what it really was drawn down to. And watching you know, someone do a pistol squat, a reverse lunge, and maybe doing, um, you know, kind of spinning over a fixed leg to see how well their pelvis moved over a fixed femur. You know, getting an idea of what their body looks like to get a better understanding of, oh, you know, this kind of looks funky. Uh, It looks like they're maybe avoiding a little bit of their hip, their knees bowing out maybe a little too much. What does their hip IR look like? Um, you know, maybe they're diving into thousands. These aren't bad things, but it's just giving an idea of where we may want to look next. Um, so it, it's uh, it's tough to really dial it down, and it's kind of from based on what you see. And, and I think the ability to assess movement like that sometimes actually gets muddied by introducing the technology. Um, but it sounds like what you're doing by by honing in on those understanding norms and then honing in on a given perhaps deficit, measuring that deficit to, to really confirm whether it's there or not, maybe correcting that deficit and seeing what that does to the movement pattern. I think that really summarizes what an outstanding evaluation should be. For sure, definitely. And the one of the hardest parts about that in a sport like soccer or baseball all athletes are asymmetric all human beings are asymmetrical in their own right and specifically in soccer at the professional level these athletes have been playing some of them their entire lives and a right-footed player is a right-footed player unless you're purely gifted and you're just as good with your left than you are with your right but a right-footed player and you play in the same position on the same side of the field you're going to be asymmetrical because your training age is however long it's been since you've been a novice, amateur, professional, whatever it is, you're going to be asymmetrical. So you have to be careful not to pull somebody out of that asymmetry too much and create something that's an environment that they're not successful in because they've gotten to this point in their career because of the way that they are. Now, there's a lot more that goes into that. Okay, what's their injury history? Do you need to maybe need to focus into that asymmetry a little more and communicate with it and get their brain to understand it more than the average person who doesn't really have that much of an injury history? But that's really where individualized care comes in and really understanding the individual in front of you. Um, but you know, just because you see an asymmetry and imbalance doesn't mean it's a bad thing. And that's, I think that's a really important concept and takeaway to, to just to, to understand from this. I think you've highlighted a, a plethora of very important concepts to, to take away from an evaluation, to understand the progression of hamstring pathology and how we load them appropriately and get them back on the field, as well as touching on what it's like uh, in pro sports versus what it's like in, in general population uh, and maybe where those two worlds merge. So if you had one last piece of advice to all the sports physical therapists that are hanging on every single word that you just shared, it would be what, Zach? There's a lot to learn 
from the people around you, whether they're physical therapists or not physical therapists in the sports world. Um, I can't tell you how much I've learned from other professionals that aren't physical therapists. And I have learned so many things that have made me a better physical therapist and better at my job, um, understanding the different worlds and little things that I just may not have picked up on. And I think that's really important. And we just spoke about return to play, you know, for a large portion of this, you know, understanding the world of performance coach in soccer, because eventually there's a handoff that happens where the athlete will return in a progressed manner to an integrated practice environment, non-contact, whatever it is, and understanding what they're doing, what they need to do, so you can set the athlete up for success to get to that next stage with that performance coach. I think that's a part that we didn't really speak about um, as part of that's important for this setting too, is that handoff that happens and getting them back onto the practice pitch. Um, But that being said, listen and talk to the professionals around you um, who are physical therapists but also who aren't physical therapists because you're going to learn a lot more than you think. That, that's awesome advice. Um, Zach, where can all these sports physical therapists find you? My only social media platform I really use is on Instagram. Uh, so you can find me on Instagram. The handle's at the sports physio underscore. Uh, feel free to DM me on there. Uh, you know, pepper me with questions. My email link is on there as well. Uh, so if you have any questions and you feel like you want to email me as well, go for it. Uh, I'm all ears. Uh, I love it. And Zach, the way we got you on this podcast is hearing from the listeners at pod at truesportspt.com. We love feedback. Um, I love that, Zach, your name came up in, in kind of those discussions and back and forth, and you'll always get a reply from us. Um, so Zach, thank you so much for your time for your knowledge, for for being so open and professional. Uh, I really think you made the world of sports PT a better place with this (laughs) interview. So thanks so much for your time. Yoni, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Um, Thank you to the listeners who who want me to have on. Uh, I'm humbled and um, I'm, I'm excited to hopefully for people to take something away from this. Absolutely. Keep it up. See you soon. Thanks for listening to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. If you'd like more information on today's episode, please visit us online at truesportspt.com. True Sports, what sports rehab should be.